0: This is the Angel Next Door podcast, where we will talk about all things angel investing what it is, who does it, how do we find them, what does it mean to invest in an early stage company. If you have ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. In today's episode, we're talking to Janine Furpo. Janine is a writer, angel investor, impact investor, and social entrepreneur. And for about 10 years now, she has been on a personal mission to invest all of her money in alignment with her values. She's so passionate about this that she wrote a book called Activate Your Money, Invest to Grow Your Wealth, and Build a Better World. Jeanine and I met about six years ago when we were both on the investment committee for the Next Wave Impact Fund. That fund ended up investing in 15 impact companies around the globe. Janine is also the co-founder of Invest for Better, which is a nonprofit organization that gives women the confidence, skills, and encouragement to take control of their assets and use them to influence things they care about. Janine and I are not just going to talk about investing, but we're also going to talk about all financial decisions and how they matter: things like where you shop, where you bank, where you put your retirement savings. Enjoy the show. Well, hi, Janine. Welcome to the show. Hi, Marcia. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you coming on. You know, we're talking every episode about the angel next door, people who have started as an angel investor. How did they get there? What does it mean to be an angel investor to you? Why does each person do it? So really super excited to hear your story and hear more about your book. So why don't you start us off with just telling us a little bit about how you had this vision to align your values with your money. What does that exactly mean? And then how did that lead you down a path to angel investing?
1: So that's a great question. And it's a sort of a long story. So I'm going to give you the short version of it. But the short version is that I, in the mid-1990s, ended up, I was in the high-tech industry in the Silicon Valley, and I ended up leaving a job and taking about four and a half months and doing a solo backpacking trip through sub-Saharan Africa. And while I was on that trip, I saw poverty like I'd never seen it before. And I decided when I came back that I wanted to make a change in my career and figure out a way that I could make a difference with my work. I wanted my work to be focused on poverty in developing countries And it took me about a year, but I figured out a way to do that. And I ended up applying technology to poverty and other social development problems to solve them. And I did that for about 20 years. And because of that, and because I lived in the Bay Area, I was sort of a social entrepreneur before that was a thing. And I was also in a lot of the conversations here around what became known as impact investing. And over a decade ago, even though I was not a high net wealth individual, I made a personal commitment to figure out how to invest all of my own assets, my cash, my stock, everything that I had in ways that aligned with my values. And I've been on that journey ever since with financial advisors primarily. But then I retired from my second career, my international development career, about four and a half years ago. And I started taking my money back and working to get to my goal myself. And what I realized in the course of doing that was that we had gotten to a point where anyone, even individuals who are not accredited investors, can actually put their money to work in ways that are meaningful to them and that can create a better world. So I decided it was time to get that word out. And the way I thought I could do it was write a book. And so that's what I did. I spent about two and a half, three years writing a book called Activate Your Money, Invest to Grow Your Wealth and Build a Better World. And that was published last year.
0: Amazing. So before we get into all of the wonderful things we're going to talk about related to the book, so you started this second career. And I know some of our listeners are thinking, wow, I want to start a second career. I did start a second career myself. Tell us a little bit about how did you figure out how you were going to do that. And then what happened?
1: Ah, so when I started down that path and remember, this is in the mid nineties. So the internet had not even happened yet. In fact, the internet became a thing literally while I was on my trip. So before I left on my trip, I was in the CD-ROM industry and multimedia business. And when I came back, that was gone. And this thing called the internet had come online. So that's the realm in which I was trying to make this decision. And at that time, the only way that I could envision working in a developing country was to take the foreign service exam and become, you know, work for the foreign service. That's how I figured you worked in developing countries. So what I did was I did a lot probably about 150 to 200 informational interviews <laughs> over the course of a year oh my yeah wow. it was intense and i was working full time at the same time so i just started talking to people and and i was asking them well you know what do people do how do you how do you do this and and over time it became clearer and clearer what might be possible. And I realized at that time that the way to do international work was all based out of Washington, D.C. So I went to Washington, D.C. And I spent a couple of weeks there and I had a lot of informational interviews again. And when I came home from D.C., I had my first two consulting gigs. One was with the World Bank and one was with the U.S. government. And that kicked me off on what became my second career. Wow.
0: So what was the main work then that you ended up doing for the next 20 years?
1: So what I ended up doing was it started off back in the mid nineties. We thought that the way to help, there was something called the digital divide. And the belief was that one of the ways that we could help people in developing countries was to actually get them access to computers. So I started off by building computer labs in sub-Saharan Africa, in India and other parts of Asia, and trying to teach people how to use computers. That turned out to be very wrong-minded for like a lot of reasons. Yes, including the fact that when you put a computer in many parts of Africa, you have to build buildings around them. You have to put, I mean, we had to build infrastructure to actually get the computer to work. We even had to have people come in and vacuum the computers out once a month because of the dust problems. So all of these things that you don't think about as realities in other parts of the world, we just assume that what we have here and the way things work here work in other places. I learned very quickly that that wasn't the case. So, about. Five years into my second career, I was brought into Hewlett-Packard to be part of an initiative that Carly Fiorona had started there called uh, e-inclusion. And the intention was to look at how a corporation like Hewlett-Packard could do well financially at the same time it was doing good for the bottom of the pyramid. And I got involved in the financial services sector and looking at microfinance, which is giving small loans primarily to women to help bring them out of poverty. It was a very successful undertaking, but it needed to scale about 25, 15 times bigger than it was. It was primarily a philanthropic undertaking and there was no way philanthropic money was gonna get it to the kind of scale it needed to be. So people started looking at, could they commercialize microfinance? And other people, myself included, started looking at, could we apply technology to microfinance, to help at scale, and to help reduce the cost of operations. And that work, what came out of that work was the discovery that the mobile phone could become a really great vehicle for banking the poor and helping them get access to more liquid forms of capital with less friction. And so That launched an entire industry called mobile money. So I became one of the earliest mobile money experts and worked in the mobile money sector from basically 2007 until I retired in 2017.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. What a great legacy to leave with some of these people that are in such need of being able to try to advance and they can't get the money. So these microloans, I I know they've been, you know, microfinance has been around for a while and people have been able to take advantage, but for at some points, there wasn't a way for the people to actually get the money. And so that this is kind of how you were able to tie all that together. Is that right?
1: Well, yes. And the way that mobile money works, I mean, some of the things that also, so this is crazy. So in a lot of developing countries, like for example, I worked a lot in Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania. It used to be that, and it still is to a large degree, a family in a rural area that's pretty poor will save money, get one of their family members educated, usually a man, and will send him to the capital city where he can make a better income, and then send money home to the people in the rural area. Before mobile money, that usually meant either that person had to quit their job for a couple of days and travel all the way home to take the money, or they would maybe put the money in an envelope, write the address of where the money was supposed to go, the village and the name of the person, give it to a bus driver. Oh Paid the God. bus driver a bit of a fee. And that envelope would move from bus driver to bus driver to bus driver until it reached its destination. So there was an element of trust that your money would actually get to where it was going. And it worked well enough that that was a way that people move money. So it would usually take days or weeks to get money from the capital city to its final destination. With mobile money, it eliminated that and the money can literally move in seconds. So you can respond to emergencies. You can, I mean, just so much changed with the ability to move money easily and quickly where it needed to move to solve the needs that people had. There are many, many stories, but when you actually look at some of the challenges that people face in developing countries, the lack of fluid assets, fluid money, and the lack of distribution infrastructure are two of the huge bottlenecks that they face in in moving toward greater prosperity. So mobile money is helping solve one of those problems.
0: Wow, that's great. And you know that leads me to something you said earlier about how when you were first realizing that you wanted to align your values with your money, you know, cash was one of the things that you you had some cash, so but you were like how can I do this? And I remember when you were writing the book, you talking about how this was going to be a
1: super important chapter. So maybe let's start there about how we can do that. So cash is important because, and I really appreciate you bringing it up, cash is important because anyone can do this. Regardless of how much money you have or you don't have, you can think more consciously about where is your cash sitting and what is your cash doing? Because even our cash is an investment of some sort. Someone is using it to some ends. And often when we have our money in these big banks, we don't know what they're using our money for. And if we actually dug underneath and could figure it out, we'd find out that in some cases it's being used for things that we hate or things that we protest against. So one of the things that we can do is look toward putting our money into more local community banks credit unions. There are banks that are focused on climate change that are using their assets to support climate change through the way they're making investment decisions and loans. There's banks that are supporting agriculture, small, polder agriculture. There are banks that are focused on Black Americans. There are Native American banks. So there are a lot of choices as to where you can put your money and you're not giving up anything really in doing that. So when I was writing that chapter, I interviewed a lot of people in the banking sector and I also opened four different bank accounts just to test the process and I moved all my assets out of the big banks where that money had been before. I eventually consolidated. I now have one bank that I use for my checking account because they have good technology and it's in My local community, it's in Oakland, and I have another bank that I use for my savings account. It's also in Oakland, and both of those banks are serving the local community. They are providing loans to female entrepreneurs who are declined by the major banks, and they also are providing loans for underbanked and underserved populations, often by populations, to get access to homes go to school, buy cars, etc. So, and I get reports from these banks telling me how my money is being used and who's being helped. So oh, it feels great. It's amazing. hmm
0: Well, I remember in the book, you, you talked about the self-help credit union and I thought what they were doing was so amazing. So they would take the money that you would put in to a deposit, like either a checking or savings account, and then they could turn around and they could give a loan at favorable rates to, you know, I think in the book, use an example of a, a couple that was struggling with their mortgage and they needed to to take out a line of credit, but they they were not able to get the rate that they could have gotten, you know, uh, at a bank if they'd had a little bit better credit. And now they could go to the self help credit union and they would be able to help them and kind of get them back on track.
1: Exactly. You remember that very well. And in fact, self help credit union is where I continue to have my savings account and I continue to get, you know, stories from them. So another quick story is there's a nonprofit in Oakland that has been in business for over 20 years and they get a lot of their capital from the state government and during the pandemic that capital dried up. You might remember that you know money was very different early, early in the pandemic. And so they were about to go out of business. They needed some capital. So they went to the bank that they had been banking at for over a decade to get a PPP loan and their bank turned them down. Wow. So they ended up going to Self-Help Federal Credit Union. They got a loan from Self-Help and it kept that non business, but their bank would have let them go under. Wow. It's crazy. That is crazy. So going from
0: cash then, the other thing you mentioned that early on you felt like you could affect some change with was if you had some public stock. Mm-hmm. And I know in the book, you talk about this amazing website. I love it so much called As You Sew. Mm-hmm. And so tell us, tell us more about how you got involved in all that.
1: So in looking at the stock, so I tend to be in index funds and ETFs. So when I started investing back in the 1980s, the way you invested then was you bought individual companies and I belong to a female only investment club and we taught ourselves how to invest in the stock market. And so that's what I used to do, but that was a lot of work. And I was a busy person traveling all over the world. And so I shifted my assets into index funds and that's where I have a lot of my money. But a lot of these index funds have you in, you know, very unattractive businesses. I wanted, I didn't want to be in, in the oil and coal business. I didn't want to be invested in prisons. I didn't want to be Invested in tobacco. And I was in a lot of those things. So in order to figure out what I was in and how to find something better, I use this tool that you mentioned. It's called As You Sow, Invest Your Values. And if you just Google that, you'll find it. And what they do is they have seven different lenses that you can look through: fossil-free, gender diversity, prison systems. I won't go through them all. And you can literally put either the name of the fund that you own or just the five-letter stock name, the ticker, into their website, and it will show you what that fund holds. It will actually give it a grade across all of those different lenses, and it will be very specific and say, this percent of this fund is invested in fossil fuel companies, and here they all are. And so I started to see that a lot of what I held was getting D's and F's in the scoring system. And I used that same tool to find other things that were getting B's. And Mm I started investing in the B, the funds that were doing better. I mean, it's hard to find anything perfect in the stock market, but I certainly was able to do much, much better than what I had been doing before. And what's super interesting is, and I knew all of this from the research, that you do not have to give up capital gain to move your money into more aligned stock market choices. I saw it for myself. So I'm invested in something called the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, which is a well-known fund, VTSAX, And I invested in another Vanguard fund that was more aligned with my values. And that second fund outperformed VTSAX. So I was getting better alignment and better performance.
0: Wow. That's great. And, you know, that's so important to talk about because in a lot of cases, I keep hearing over and over again, well, if you're doing something to make an impact, you're going to give up your returns. And you're just proving time and time again that that is
1: not the case. It's not. In fact, at this point in time, in fact, as of the end of last year, one in three dollars that are invested by institutional investors and professional investors are invested in sustainability. So it went from, I think it was, I may have the years wrong, but if memory serves, it was one one out of every four dollars in 2019 went to one out of every $3 in 2020. So what you're seeing is, is big institutional investors like the Capric's of the world, et cetera, are shifting assets into these kinds of more sustainable investments. I'm doing this because it really matters to me where my money goes and what it's supporting in the world. I want to see a world that is sustainable and equitable. And I want economy and an economy that is sustainable and equitable. They're doing it because they see the financial sense that it makes.
0: Yes. Right. Yes. And that speaks volumes, right? (laughs) That alone can speak volumes. So, all right. So we've talked a little bit about how you had these great ideas. You've now put them into action. And how did you then make your way into the private world of investing?
1: So because I was sort of a social entrepreneur and I was involved in all of these efforts around, I was very early on a lot of what was going on in the Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, of doing well while doing good financially, I got invited to be a mentor in some of the early accelerators around socially responsible businesses. And so doing some of that mentoring, I met some companies that I was very impressed with and I thought well you know I have a little bit of extra capital I'm just going to give this a shot so I made one or two investments that way of about a $10,000 level and it was really fun and so it intrigued me and got me interested and the more I learned the more I realized I had to have you know a pretty diverse portfolio I didn't really have the time to do all of that work myself. And I was really new at all of this and didn't know what I was doing. So I heard about, and I don't even remember how, but I heard about the Rising Tide Fund. Right. I became an LP in the Rising Tide Fund. And I listened to a lot of the pitches and I got involved in some of the due diligence and I got to know Alicia Robb and I got to know you that way. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. I still think it's the coolest model. I think it's so smart and it's such an easy way for women to get involved at a low level where it's not risky. And so when Alicia started Next Wave and asked me if I wanted to be involved in that on the leadership side, I jumped at the chance and I thoroughly enjoyed being involved in Next Wave. And I have continued to do independent deals on my own. But I'm actively looking for another way to get involved again with a group of women to start doing more deals because I've put aside some money for it. My time is freeing up a little bit and I'm I'm searching for the next way. I I don't want to do this alone. I'm super clear on that. I want to do it with other women and I want to invest in female CEOs and people of color only. And I want to do socially responsible. And so I'm trying to find other people who are similarly aligned that I can start doing this with again.
0: That sounds amazing. I love that. So, But you also have a a new project that you're working on with Mm -hmm. Invest
1: for Better. So
0: maybe tell our listeners a little about that and how they can get involved in that.
1: Great. So Invest for Better is a nonprofit that I co-founded with another woman. Her name is Ellen Remmer. We co-founded it last year. And what Invest for Better is doing is it's actually putting women together in investment clubs, peer-led investment clubs, to teach them how to become confident investors and also to teach them how to align their money with their values. So from the beginning, when I was envisioning the book and writing the book, I really wanted the book to serve as a tool for women to learn together because we're all super busy And even though we've been taught that investing is like a solo sport, it doesn't have to be. And I think for women, approaching investing as a team sport is actually better. And I've been in three investment clubs in my life, and I've learned more from them than almost anything else. And so I always wanted the book to be used as a tool in investment clubs. And so in moving to Invest for Better, I'm now able to do that. We have a six-month curriculum that's based on the book. And then based on women's particular interests, they can choose electives after they go through our core course and take deeper dives into angel investing. We're building an angel investing course, or they can take deeper dives into public equities. We're we're building a course on racial justice and racial investing. We're doing gender investing. So there'll be all these ways that women can go deeper into the subject areas that interest them.
0: That is really fantastic. Now, how would somebody find out more information?
1: So the... Invest for Better is the name of our organization. You could just go to www.investforbetter.org. There's all kinds of information there. And if anyone was interested in the book, Activate Your Money, you can go on any website that sells books and look for Activate Your Money. And my name, Janine Furpo, and you will find it. Wow,
0: that is great. I'm hoping that all of our listeners will want to do that. Now, Janine, you and I, when we were with um, doing the investing for Next Wave, because as some people might have heard in our previous podcasts, Next Wave is now we don't deploy any more capital. We still have active companies, but we don't have any more capital to deploy in that particular fund. But it was so much fun to find the companies. And and I felt like each of us, and there were about nine of us who were working on this, would bring some really different types of impact companies. And, And I remember us talking about the definition, how we were going to define impact. And we were very, very thoughtful about it in a lot of different ways because we wanted to be extremely inclusive, but we also wanted to be making sure that we were aligned with our mission. So I know we had many, many conversations about that. And, but maybe talk a little bit about how you were able to find some of these companies. I mean, all across Africa has just been doing great. Stony Creek Colors, also an amazing company. Like, how did you get involved with those companies?
1: So I was not the one that brought those. I'm the one who is overseeing them. But I brought Storm Sensor, which is also doing really great now, and some of the other companies that some things that we ended up investing in and some that we didn't. And the way that I came across them was... Just by being involved in different networks. So, because I'm so steeped in this whole area of impact investing, I know who the players are in that space. And I would be invited to different events or to different talks that I could then learn about some of these kinds of companies. So, and at the time that we were, Doing Next Wave and getting Next Wave off the early years of it, I was living in Seattle. And so I was very involved in this space up there as well. In fact, one of the investment clubs I belonged to was called the Seattle Impact Investors Group. And so I heard from other members of that group who were aware of different deals that were happening and different companies that were seeking capital.
0: Well, that's so funny because here we are, we're on the same investment committee and obviously we were all doing diligence on every company that we ended up investing in, but your passion for those two companies that I mentioned was so strong. I thought that you found them. No, so, I mean, didn't. it just is a testament to how, when you really feel strongly about a company and as a group, you can bring so much value. And I think that's so fantastic.
1: Yeah. I I mean I loved I love the the next wave model. I totally understand why it was a lot of work to do it again. And one of the things that actually makes me really kind of sad is that in this whole in private investing space is that it is really virtually impossible for a general manager to make money off of a fund that is less than 25, 30 to $50 million, right? You just can't do it. And so people start funds that are much smaller to prove that they can actually run a bigger fund. But once funds become bigger, the minimums to get in jump dramatically, which then makes it virtually impossible for most people to participate. So- I think a lot about how could you structure something where maybe a foundation or somebody comes along and they actually pay the general manager and the general partners a salary to run smaller funds so that. People who don't have the same means can get involved in them and get involved in this kind of investing. I mean, I really think we need to bring more people into this kind of investing, and particularly women, but the hurdle for entry is high, and it precludes a lot of people from joining. Even the women who could afford it are afraid of it, and they're not going to come in with a $250,000 as their first investment.
0: You are a hundred percent right on that. Yes. And that is a tough thing to solve. I mean, you're right. If you don't have at least 50 million under management, the fees are not going to allow for the people who are truly managing the fund to be able to make a living and make it viable. Yeah. So yeah, we could do a whole podcast episode
1: just on that topic. It, um, yeah, I'd yeah. love to see somebody step in and underwrite. So I really would. So I keep putting that out in the universe, thinking if I do that enough, maybe someone will eventually emerge. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that would be that would be great because you're right. I keep seeing people especially women and people of color trying to put funds together and it's a chicken and an egg, you know, oh, well, you don't have a track record, so we can't invest in you. But how do you get a track record when nobody will invest in you? So it's just kind of cyclical. It keeps going round and round.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then once they go through that slog the first time, they are not going to do another five million. Right, right, no right. Way. No way. And then the second fund is fifty million, and then the third fund is seventy-five million, and then the fourth fund is one hundred and fifty million, and that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Just keep getting bigger and bigger, and the the barriers to entry just keep getting bigger and bigger too. And
0: that's so true. So before we wrap up, Janine, tell us a little bit about a company that you're super proud of and that you've been following for a while.
1: So one of the companies, so this is actually a debt deal. It's not an equity deal. So Mm -hmm. I'm also really interested in private debt. And part of the reason I am, or revenue-based lending or alternative forms of funding. And part of the reason I am is because I don't love the equity model where the expectation is that nine of my 10 companies are not going to make it. Right. I want all of my companies to make it. And so I ended up hearing about a gay woman who was an engineer by training, who wanted, who had this passion for bagels. She came from New York and the, her favorite bagel company in New York went out of business and she decided she could not live in a world that didn't (laughs) have that bagel. So being an engineer, she reversed engineered it. It took her about three years (laughs) to figure it out, I think. But she finally made this bagel that she and her friends and everybody who she gave it to were just in love with. And so she decided to start a bagel company in my neighborhood. And I don't even eat bagels, but I loved her story. (laughs) And so I made an investment in her. And the terms of the deal was it was going to be a five-year note, 8% return each year, balloon payment in the fifth year. And I'll tell you something. This woman showed me her financials. She had her, this is what I think is going to happen scenario. She had her best case scenario. She had her worst case scenario. And she had contingencies figured out for everything. Wow. And I thought, this is like so over the top prepared for this business that I how can she go wrong right so she's she started building her bagel company and it took her a year longer than she thought to get the whole shop up because of all the regulations that she had to pass through and just building out the whole building she finally and i was shocked that she hadn't gone under like year number 2 because she hadn't but she had her contingency plans right so then she finally finally opens In November of 2019. Oh, no. Yeah. And she had lines going around the block. Wow. She would sell out of her bagels at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And then the pandemic came five months later, four months later. And I thought, oh, my God, she's done for. Well, she wasn't done for. She pivoted. She started delivering bagels out of the parking lot. She started delivering bagels to people's houses. Long story short, she paid me back in full in two years. Wow. And in two years. And now she's coming back. She's come back to me. She's doing a $5 million raise. Well, she's doing, she needs $5 million. She's expanding. So she's expanding in the Bay Area. She's already expanded here. She's built a factory. She's turning out like ten. Thousand bagels a day. She has distribution. I think she's in Whole Foods. She's looking at expanding in LA. Anyway, this whole expansion plan that she has is a five million dollar undertaking. She's putting two seven dollars of her own money in. She's putting last year she made close to two million in profits. That money is going in. She's raising the remainder, which is a little over two million. Same terms as the first time: five years, eight percent. And she thinks that she will pay everybody back again in two years, just like she did before. So I gave her four times the amount of money that I gave before. Wow,
0: that's a great story. Yeah. Revenue-based financing, is it's really becoming a thing. And we're actually having a session on it at our upcoming Angel Capital Association Summit. And yeah, I keep hearing more and more about it.
1: Yeah. So if anyone wants to invest in a just skyrocket entrepreneur doing bagels, let me know. I don't know if she's still doing her raise or if she's filled it out, but I'll tell you something else. The materials that she sent me to tell me about her second raise were also it's like, oh, my God, I have looked at a lot of decks and a lot of information at this point. But this one was off the charts. It just goes to show who she is and and how she thinks and how detail oriented she is. And yeah, it was amazing. So I was like, of course, I'm in again, of course. And, And that's why we
0: always say that you bet on the jockey, not necessarily the horse, although the horse is important. Yeah, yeah. Well, Janine, it was great to have you on the show. We will put links to everything that we talked about in the show notes, especially to where people can find your book. And if they were, are interested in becoming a member of an Invest for Better group, they can do that as well. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Really fun talking to you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the annual and event partners of the Angel Capital Association's Annual Summit. This must attend event, ACA 2022, the Summit of Angel Investing, Reach New Heights, Build New Connections, will be held in Atlantic City, New Jersey from May 17th through the 19th. You can learn more by going to our website at theangelcapitalassociation.org and clicking on the events tab. This content would not be possible without these partners and their generous support. Partners like American Express, NIH Seed, Foley Hoag, NSF, America Seed Fund, Assure, Fox Rothschild, Morgan Lewis, k Gates, Millennium Trust Company, VentureWell, New Jersey ADA, Hugo New Capital, Ben Franklin Partners, and many, many more. Thank you. The Angel Next Door podcast is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Angel Capital Association, and the Angel Capital Association does not specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services. Listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax, investing, legal, or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose are disclaimed.